Good morning. This morning is going to be a little different, uh, more devotional in nature. Uh, we have two topics and two speakers and a video in there. So um, today is uh, the two topics come from uh, this Advent Sunday is the shepherd's candle. And so we're going to talk about the shepherds a little bit. And it's also the candle of joy. So we're going to talk about joy. And I just want to start by saying that uh, some of what we're going to say this morning is from Scripture. There's going to be some things it's from tradition, and uh, some things are from what scholars believe. But uh, some of those things, tradition, what scholars believe, uh, we can't necessarily know that it's true, but there's still things we can learn from it. And uh, it's part of the Christmas story that has kind of evolved around Christmas, so we want to just bring out some of those things this morning. So first, I want to just introduce uh, on the shepherds. Um, sheep, you know those woolly, uh, stubborn creatures? And there's a reason why God compares us to sheep, and uh, I hope it's not because of the smelly or woolly part. Uh, but I think we do fit the stubborn part. When Jesus was born, sheep were a big business in the Bethlehem area. Uh, Male lambs without defect were uh, year-old male lambs, were required for sacrifices at the temple. Uh, The law required regular sacrifices for your sins, as well as the law specified festivals or feasts where people were to go up to the temple to celebrate and worship. And so all of these required lambs to sacrifice. As well, throughout the year, people would make their way to Jerusalem uh, and uh, especially on the festivals, they would descend in large numbers. And uh, it wasn't convenient to carry a lamb along to sacrifice when you're coming a long distance. And so a whole system created around that. Uh, it's believed there was a, it created a booming local industry of providing male lambs for sacrifice. At the time of Jesus, you had a local po- Jewish population, and then you had the larger Jewish population that was in the bigger area around there. But many of the Jews were dispersed throughout the European and Asian countries. And so many of these at uh, Passover, they would make their way to Jerusalem, uh, do a pilgrimage. And they would, some of them would stay until the Feast of Pentecost 40 days later. Josephus, a historian who wrote uh, around 40 years after the death of Christ, and uh, he was there during the fall of Jerusalem when the Romans took over Jerusalem, uh, he estimated, well, he was saying that the high priest, the last Passover before the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, the high priest estimated that there was 256,500 lambs that were sacrificed during Passover. That's a lot of lambs. Now, many of them, most of them weren't at the temple. Because at Passover, you gathered as family units and you'd invite others in if they... They could come and join you, but uh, the, the head of the family, the father, he would take a lamb, he would uh, slice his throat, catch the blood in a basin, and then they would splash the blood on the doorposts and over top of the door. Now, all remembering what happened back in Egypt. As the death angel, when he saw the blood, he would pass over that house and not kill the firstborn son in that plague. 
And so they would uh, splash the blood there around the door, and uh, they would roast the lamb, and uh, everyone would go in, and they'd celebrate the Passover feast together. Now, Josephus, his estimation was that on the average, you had 20 people per group that would be celebrating in a group. And so uh, if you take uh, 256,500 uh, 500 uh, lambs, uh, which the high priest estimated were sacrificed, uh, that is about 513,000 people at Jerusalem during Passover and that last Passover before uh, it fell. Josephus estimated the Jewish population that time was around 80,000. Now, today scholars think that this is all exaggerated a bit, that Josephus exaggerated it, maybe put an extra zero in there. Uh, scholars, some of them would say, well, it was probably about 25,650 lambs. And if you ex exaggerate the size of the group, uh, you only take 10 people per group, uh, that's still 256,500 people that were at Jerusalem at that point. That's a lot of people in a small place. Today, scholars estimate that on a normal Passover, that uh, there was probably was around 40,000 thousand people living uh, in Jerusalem and right around Jerusalem and about 250,000 would descend on it. So if you want to compare that today, think of everyone in Wainwright. You're living in a house that has one to two rooms and suddenly comparative size to us, it'd be about 41, 42,000 people would descend on Wainwright and you had to host them in your one to two room homes. It would have been people camping out everywhere. Uh, I think it would have been a lot of fun, but it would have been very crowded. But the point is, for one festival alone, you have thousands of sacrificial lambs needed. Maybe hundreds of thousands. Plus there's the daily sacrifices that were continually happening. People coming and going, making personal sacrifices. So sheep were a big business. It was a big business in those days. And so the Bible says there were shepherds out in the fields. What were they doing? Very likely they were taking care of sacrificial lambs. Well, that's the traditional thought. And we don't know if these particular shepherds were taking care of sacrificial lambs, but it's very possible. And so these lambs, without defect, were de destined to be sacrificed as a substitute for someone's sins. So a sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice upon sacrifice. Without end, it was a constant flow of blood. The male lambs that were born, the shepherd was conscious of where that male lamb was going to go. Each lamb was sacrificed in faith, trusting God to save them from their sins. They didn't understand how this salvation would be accomplished, but God had promised it. And they were fully trusting in his promises. So we'd have to include these shepherds in Hebrews 11, 1 through 2. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And so out of all the people that God could have announced the birth of Jesus to, he chose the people of faith who looked after the sacrificial lambs. So in Luke 2, Starting in verse 8, we have, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. 
But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to man on whom his favor rests. Even when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So today, we celebrate the shepherd's candle, the ones that were most likely looking after the sacrificial sheep. A few weeks ago, Karen gave a devotional at the council meeting, and she did her devotional on shepherds. And uh, her devotional is based on a common belief about the shepherds, Again, we can't know if all the beliefs about the shepherds are true, but they're very possible. And so, like so many of the traditions around Christmas, these are things which God can and does use to speak to us today. But what Karen is about to share really is her testimony, how God used these things to speak to her. And so I'd like to ask Karen to come up, and she's going to share with us for a few minutes. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Pastor Don, for asking me to share. Um, And as Pastor Don related, I can't guarantee everything is true, but I have a great imagination, and I hope that this encourages you to use your imagination to see how big and great our God is and that he is in control of every single detail. A long time ago in the basement here, we were, must have been this time of year, because the adults were downstairs having Sunday school, which meant the children were upstairs practicing their Christmas program. And two prominent men started discussing the shepherds. And they said how brave they were because they left their flocks and ran to see the newborn king. And, you know, had anything happened to those flocks, it could have meant their heads were on a stake. And I thought, you know what, I think that's just too simple. And so I began to pray and research about the shepherds. And so I just want to share with you the bare bones of what I found. So as as Pastor Don said, I wondered why God chose shepherds to send the angels to. Of all the professions at the time, why shepherds? Why not farmers or owners of vineyards or makers of wine or, you know, Kosher pickle makers. Um, Many of the major players in the Old Testament were shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were shepherds. David was a shepherd. God calls himself the good shepherd. And the hills surrounding Bethlehem were considered choice pastures. And in these hills, the sheep for the temple sacrifices were born. The shepherds who cared for them were not young boys. Instead, because of the responsibility and importance of this particular job, they would have been men of about 30 years of age, 
and they would have begun many years of study at an early age. Their lineage of Levites and studies would have qualified them to be priests. So they were priestly shepherds, if you will. And it was not only their responsibility to care for the flock, but they would also have been the ones to choose the lambs for sacrifice. Who else would have known them better? They would have known each sheep by name and the lineage of each one. They'd have known them personally and likely on careful lists they would have kept, much like farmers today keep of their cattle. They would have known which were the firstborn, which were perfect without spot or blemish. They had to know the sins of the Jewish people were at stake. Of course, the final decision would be up to the priests at the temple, but these shepherds had to know what they were doing. The angels told the shepherd they would find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, that this would be a sign for them. Wouldn't this sign hold more significance to confirm that they'd found the right baby in a town filled to bursting? And there are two differing thoughts on what exactly swaddling cloths actually were. One thought is that they were long strips of gauze-like material. People would wind around and around their waists, much like an undergarment when they traveled. Because the probability in those days when you were traveling, the possibility of dying was huge. And if they died, their companions would wrap them in these strips of cloth or swaddling cloths in preparation for burial. So in effect, they would have carried their burial clothes with them. The second school of thought is the one I personally like. When it came to time for one, of, when it came time for one of the ewes to be born, I'm sorry, for one of the ewes to give birth, the shepherds would take her to a specific two-story building called Migdal Ader. Often, our Bibles today refer to as it, refer to it as the Tower of the Flock. And the upper story of this building was much like a wa- watchtower. This is where the chief shepherd would stand and keep watch over the flocks, watching for wolves or bears, thieves or any other perceived threat, and give the men on the ground advance warning of any danger that was coming their way. In the lower part of this tower, would be kept, it would be kept ceremonially clean, and it's where the sheep would be give birth, aided by the shepherds. And since these lambs were intended for sacrifice at the Temple Mount, it was very important that they not be injured. God's word clearly stated that they were to be the firstborn without spot or blemish. So as soon as these lambs were born, the shepherds would wrap them tightly in swaddling cloths to prevent them from hurting themselves and lay them in the manger. And once their jerky post-birth movement subsided and the lambs were calm, they'd then be released released to their mother. Another mention of Migdalator is that Rachel, whose name means you, E-W-E, died here in childbirth. As she was dying, her son was laid in her arms, and she named her son Benani, meaning son of my sorrow. Jacob later renamed him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And is that not a picture of Jesus, who is known as a man of sorrows, and who now sits at the right hand of God? So to go back to that night, we read that familiar passage in Luke 2. There were in the field shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. These men were not easily frightened. David told Saul, 
told him about fighting bears and lions and killing them with his bare hands. And I would suggest this would be the first of many adrenaline rushes that night, their first adrenaline rush of, of being terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I don't know much about adrenaline rushes. Maybe Michael can tell you more than I. I don't know if you can have more than one in that period of time. But I think if there were another one, that would be their second adrenaline rush of the awe and wonder of hearing an angel speak. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And then the angel explained the sign they were to look for. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. They knew exactly what the swaddling cloths and the manger meant. This child was indeed intended for sacrifice, the one who would take away the sins of the world. This was the Lamb of God. Adrenaline rush number three, the fulfillment of a long-awaited prophecy. The Bible goes on to say that suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Adrenaline rush number four, as they witness the most spectacular, beautiful concert the world has ever known. Angels as high as your eye could see, filling the sky from horizon to horizon, singing in perfect heavenly harmony, proclaiming that God had come in the flesh to redeem mankind from its sin. It just, it's like holy goosebumps. We often read the next verse in such a ho-hum way, kind of like, well, Moshe, what do you say? You suppose we should go see what God has done? No, I don't think there was anything quiet or ho-hum about it. Let's go. Let's go see what God's done. Let's go see this newborn king. They probably raced off breathlessly, their feet hardly touching the ground. They didn't care about the flocks or anything else. And to me, it seemed like they knew where they were going. Perhaps they knew there was a young couple in the tower of the flock, and the girl was already in labor when they got there. They also knew exactly where to find a manger and swaddling cloths. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths, just as the angel said. In my mind, I think they just sat there, bowed there in awe and worship for quite a while until maybe they finally looked up and saw that Mary and Joseph were exhausted and they needed to leave them to have a rest. The shepherds were often frowned upon as lower society, smelly men. But soon after meeting the new Messiah, they banged on every door to tell them the good news. Wake up! The king has come! We saw him! We saw angels! This is the truth! The shepherds were chosen to proclaim the birth of the Messiah. It's almost like God smiled, and with a twinkle in his eyes, he said, Hey! Come see what we've done. I want to show you something. What do you think of my lamb? Isn't he perfect? He's without spot or blemish. Won't he be the perfect sacrifice? Only our God, our God of wonder, of love, 
of amazing surprises, of limitless mercy and grace, would think to invite the ones who normally cared for, loved, and chose the lambs for sacrifice to be the only ones, besides Mary and Joseph, to be given an angelic invitation to take part in one of the holiest events in the history of time, the absolute privilege of witnessing and welcoming the baby Jesus into the world. God does all things well and with a purpose. Angels announced the conception of Jesus. Angels announced the birth of Jesus. Angels announced that he was indeed alive. Angels announced he had risen again and gone into heaven and that he would come again. We can be sure that angels will announce his coming again with the sound of the trumpet, and he will be victorious. And we are all part of God's purpose. We need to be confidently and with conviction proclaiming the message of God's love and forgiveness, just as the shepherds did. Even so come, Lord Jesus. languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrasune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now, what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later, biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. 
And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the Apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust Jesus that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. So we celebrate the candle of joy this morning, and I bring you good news of great joy. A Savior has been born, Christ the Lord. So again, picture the shepherds raising thousands of lambs. Millions of lambs over the years have been sacrificed while they wait and wait in the sure hope that a Savior would come. One who would save them from their sins. And so we have to ask, why such joy? After all, this baby is going to destroy their profit margins. They had the most to lose. Why such joy? It's because they were seeing their faith realized. The one who had saved them from their sins had come, and so they returned from seeing Jesus. It says they were glorifying and praising God. That's what happens when we're overtaken with joy. We can't keep it within. Joy is seeing your faith realized. So let's talk about joy for a few minutes. If we'd been there, I believe, with the shepherds that day, Uh, we would have flowed over with joy. It was pretty exciting stuff. But we live in a different day and a different age. We aren't back there. But today we have a living hope. We're privileged people. We no longer live in ignorance. We understand. We no longer offer sacrifices because the sacrifice for our sins has happened. We do not wait hoping for salvation We have salvation. We are cleansed. We are renewed. We have the Holy Spirit within. We have seen so many of the promises fulfilled. And so we should be full of joy. But the problem is the message is so old and so familiar to us that it's easy for us to lose the wonder of that joy. Instead, we get caught up in being so busy trying to enjoy the pleasures of life that we forget to take joy in what really does bring us joy. 
And it's also easy to forget that we have promises yet to be fulfilled. And we're to take joy in them also. Many of the promises are still future, and our hope is in those promises. The promise of a resurrection. The promise of reigning on this earth with Christ. The promise of a new earth. The promise of a heavenly city coming down to the new earth. The promise of a face-to-face relationship with Jesus. The promise that we will share in Jesus' inheritance. And so we heard the definition here in that video. Biblical joy is more than a happy feeling. It's a lasting emotion that comes from the choice to trust that God will fulfill his promises. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, faith is being sure of what we hope for. And so what joy we will experience one day when we see all of those promises fulfilled, our faith is realized, as one day we stand in heaven with a vast multitude singing with joy. And so to capture a sense of triumph and joy that is ours, I'd like us just to go through Psalm 98 for a few minutes. The psalm is a song of triumph written in three sections. Verse 1 through 3, they look back at their deliverance from Egypt, so it's a look at the past. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm has worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so they're looking back at what they've experienced. How God had devastated Egypt with plagues, yet delivering them from those plagues. How the Egyptian army has chased them into the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army drowns while they walk across on dry ground. And God, through all of that, displayed his greatness and his power to the nations through the deliverance of Israel. And as they look back at their deliverance, the author here just says, let's sing. Let's burst out in a song of joy as we remember what God has done. But we too look back. Because it's all a picture of our deliverance from sin. And so as we look back to Christmas at the first coming of Jesus, when he came to deliver us from sin, through Jesus, God made his righteousness, righteousness known. Through Jesus, he made his salvation known, not just to Israel, but to the entire world. So the first three verses look back at what God has done, and it just says, burst out in a song of joy. You go to the last three verses, 7 through 9, it's looking to the future. But sandwiched in between, you have the three verses that's the present. And so as we look back to our salvation, as we look forward to the completion of our salvation, the psalmist is just urging us to erupt in an explosion of joy. In each section, the audience is expanding. So the first three is Israel. They're singing and shouting for joy because of what God has done for them. God has given them salvation. In the second section, all the earth is invited to break out into a joyous song. But in the third section, the earth itself, creation itself, is invited to burst into a song of joy. Let the sea roar, the rivers clap their hands, and the hills sing for joy. And so not only joy starts in Israel, but it spreads to the people of the earth and eventually to all creation. 
We see in this psalm the joy is just reaching a crescendo. The passion of joy is increasing. They're singing a new song, making a joyful noise. They're singing with the praises with loud instruments. He says, let the sea roar with joy. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm has worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with the trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth with righteousness and his peoples with equity. Do you just see how it's building as he goes through? The joy, the noise, everything is just expanding and the audience is expanding as it goes. So at the end, he uses the word just roar with joy. Years ago, I heard the story of a wedding where the little boy was chosen as a ring bearer. And on Friday night when they had the wedding rehearsal, everything just went perfect and he marched up there and he was cute and he stood at the front exactly. He did everything perfectly. But when it came to the day of the wedding, as he came up, as he started down that aisle, suddenly he just went over to one side and he looked up at an adult and he just went, roar! And he took a couple steps and he went to the other side and he looked at an adult and he went, roar! And he did that all the way up the aisle. And it just had the audience just laughing. Uh, they, were, they were roaring with laughter. Uh, afterwards, they asked the boy, why did you do that? Why wouldn't I do it? I'm the ring bear. <laughs> well, you can Im- imagine the noise in the audience as they were listening to that and laughing. It was a roar of laughter. Go to a sports stadium, thousands of people, and someone scores. What happens? You have a roar of noise, don't you? That's what it's talking about here. Making a very loud noise of joy. Revelation 19.6 says one day there's going to be a great multitude that's standing before God. And it says it's going to be, as they make this roar of joy, it's going to be like the roar, he says, of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder. He's just trying to somehow describe to us, it's just going to be loud as people are expressing their joy. Shouting, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Can you imagine that? You have millions and millions of people and maybe the angels joining in all shouting this at the top of their lungs and just the roar that that makes. My wife thinks that I don't have enough passion when cheering at sports games. Uh, She can yell and cheer, and I just smile. Uh, Well, this is what the psalmist is saying. 
When we think of what Jesus has done, the past salvation he's already won for us, and we think of the future of salvation being completed, we're in that middle section today. And the psalmist says, I want to hear a roar of joy from you. A smile is not enough. You need to get passionate about it. And it's out of this last section has come one of Christendom's favorite Christmas carols. Those last three verses. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Isaac Watts, when he wrote this song, he didn't call it joy to the world. He called it the Messiah's coming and kingdom. Now, the tune that we sing today was added much later, and the name was changed to Joy to the World. And I love the name Joy to the World much better than the Messiah's coming and kingdom. And yet, Isaac Watts' title captures what it's talking about here in this psalm. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Joy is our response as we think of the second coming of Jesus and as we remember the first coming. It's all creation's response to the king coming to rule this world with righteousness and equity. Somehow that song went about a hymn, went from being a hymn about Jesus' second coming to a Christmas carol remembering his first coming. And yet somehow I believe that's fitting. Because as this psalm at the end is looking ahead, it first begins by looking back. And so that's what we do at Christmas. We look back and we look ahead. And it's a joyful time. We remember it with joy. And so let's put the song back where it belongs. Uh, looking forward to a future event of joy. Jesus coming as king to rule the world. The psalmist even pictures creation waiting for this, creation responding with roars of joy, clapping and singing for joy, because Jesus is going to come and put everything back to right again. So this morning, let's do what the psalmist did as he thought about this. Let's just get excited, because we have something so much greater, so much better than scoring when a hockey team makes a goal, right? Jesus is coming. Let the sea and the earth and all that is in it roar with joy. He's going to make it all restored again. So let us roar with joy. So as we sing out this morning uh, the song, uh, Joy to the World, let's stand and let's roar it out. Uh, let's put some emotion into it and sound as though we're excited about it this morning. <laughs>